All right, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for another Lord's Day, another Christian Sabbath for us to come together to rest from our labors and to, to assemble and to worship you today, to hear your word. Lord, we thank you for that gift. Uh, we pray that you would help us not to take that for granted and that we would now prepare our minds and our hearts uh, to hear your word, both taught and preached this morning. And we pray also that uh, you would change us through your word and through your spirit. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we are this morning continuing our series on the sacraments, as every week now. And uh, today, we're turning to uh, the Bible. All right. We're turning to Scripture, and we're looking at various Scripture passages that relate to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. All right. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the history of the Lord's Supper. So we've been looking at Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Memorialists, and then, of course, the Reformed views. And now what we're going to do throughout the rest of this series is we're going to be defending the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. All right. And so we're going to do that in two ways, just like we did with baptism. The first way is we're going to look at Scripture. And so we're going to spend, I think, about three weeks just looking at various Scripture passages and concepts that relate to the Lord's Supper, uh, beginning with the Old Testament and then going into the New And then the second thing that we'll do to defend the Reformed view is we'll look at uh, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper in terms of the theology of the Supper. So we'll take everything we're doing in Scripture here and we'll put it all together in nice, concise form, just like we did with uh, the doctrine of baptism. So I hope that that will be helpful. And so let us now turn to Scripture and look at uh, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Now, there's two... uh, Two scripture passages I want you to have sort of open this morning. So maybe if you've got like a bookmark, if you want to hold a finger in one page or something. Uh, One passage is Exodus chapter 12. All right. So you can go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 12. All right. And I'll give you the other passage in just a minute. But just by way of introduction, as we look at the subject of the Lord's Supper here in scripture and looking at sort of the the big picture themes regarding the Lord's Supper, uh, we want to look firstly at the Old Testament, which is why we're turning to Exodus 12. Now, when we talked about baptism, right, we made a very tight connection between baptism and circumcision. You remember that? And that was uh, not unique to uh, myself. This is part of the reform view that we link baptism to circumcision. And the reason we do that is because circumcision was the sign and seal of inclusion in the Old Covenant, and baptism is the sign and seal of inclusion in the New Covenant. So we see a very tight parallel there of circumcision and baptism. When we come to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, there is also a very tight connection between the Lord's Supper in the New Testament and another meal that takes place in the Old Testament. And that meal is what we call the Passover. Okay, So just like baptism and circumcision are closely related between Old and New Testaments, so the Lord's Supper and the Passover are tightly connected in the same way. Okay, So our subject for today that we want to look at 
is the Passover and how that relates to the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. This is our, uh, really our main Old Testament connection here. And so there's three things that I want to do this morning as we look at the subject of the Passover. Okay? The first thing we'll do is we'll look at sacrifices and feasting in general. Okay? Sacrifices and feasting. Second thing is we'll look at the Passover itself. What was it and why should we care about it? And then thirdly, we'll look at the Passover in the New Testament. So what does the New Testament have to say about the Passover and how that relates to Christ? Okay, so we'll do those three things. So firstly, then, let's look at sacrifices and feasting. All right. Um, The reason why we're looking at this, just by the way, is because the Passover is both a sacrifice and a feast. The Passover is both offering of the sacrificial lamb, which we'll talk about in a minute, and feasting on, on the lamb, right, eating it. So there's a meal and a sacrifice kind of going hand in hand. And uh, the reason why this is the case is because God likes to use, uh, he likes to use symbolism from uh, the world of the Israelites. Okay, so feasting and offering sacrifices was not unique to the Israelites, uh, it was practiced by many Gentile pagan nations, a similar practice. Right? The, Greek, the Greeks practiced this. The Latins practiced this. The, the other Semitic people groups practiced this. They would have a linking between offering a sacrifice and then holding feasts of joy where you would eat of part of the sacrifice or you would just have some kind of feast while you're offering these major sacrifices. Okay? So this was something that was common practice in the ancient world. And so this is what Israel practiced as well, because God commanded it. And this, by the way, was one of the reasons why the Israelites were not permitted to eat feasts with Gentiles. Because when they ate feasts with Gentiles, what they were doing is they were condoning the sacrifices of the Gentiles. And the sacrifices of the Gentiles were not sacrifices devoted to the one true God, Rather, they were sacrifices that were devoted to false gods. And so Israel was not to partake of that. And so there was heavy uh, distinctions, as we know, between the practice of Israel and their feasts and their sacrifices versus the practice of the pagans. They were not to intermix. And this, by the way, is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul had so much to say about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because under the New Covenant, right, some of those some of those uh, external distinctives are not quite as strong. And so Paul leaves the eating of meat sacrificed to idols or feasting with the Gentiles as a matter of Christian conscience and no longer a matter of law because the ceremonial law being removed there. But that's a subject for another day. The point is here that for Israel, as well as for all of the ancient world, sacrifices and feasting go together. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some scripture passages in the Old Testament that teach us this very concept, okay? Now, turn with me to Isaiah 25 while keeping your finger in Exodus 12, because we will be sort of looking at Exodus 12 in a second. While you're turning to Isaiah 25, I want to read a couple passages for you from different places in the Old Testament. Firstly, in Deuteronomy, this is what we read. This is God commanding Israelites. He says... And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 
And again, coming from the Psalms, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. So in those two passages, before we get to the one in Isaiah, those two passages teach us that there's a tight connection, even in uh, Old Testament theology, between eating, feasting, and praising God. And not only is there a connection between feasting and praising God, but that feasting and praise is intimately connected with sacrifice. And so let's look at now at Isaiah 25. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. So this is a, a sort of a paragraph of verses here. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And if you flip over a few pages to Isaiah 62, just some chapters later here, I want to read Isaiah 62, verses 8 through 9. Isaiah 62, verses 8 through 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Now, these passages that we've read here, this is just a brief sampling of all the passages that you'll find in the Old Testament that clearly link four important concepts together. These four concepts are sacrifice, feasting, rejoicing, and salvation. You can see those four things are intimately connected because the sacrifice provides a kind of a kind of uh, uh, kind of pre-salvation. It doesn't provide a full salvation until we get the sacrifice of Christ. But nonetheless, the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to the salvation that God would bring through the true sacrifice. And through that, the people of Israel had rejoicing and joy, and they could feast together at the Lord's table, knowing that God would provide that sacrifice that would finally and fully save them. So you can see there's a tight connection between feasting and rejoicing and sacrificing and of God's salvation. 
And where we see all four of those things come together in the most clear, concise way is in the primary feast of the Old Testament, which was the Passover. And so now it's where we turn to Exodus 12. It's in Exodus 12 that we find the Passover. Now, as we talk about the Passover, there's an important uh, element here that we need to sort of understand. Firstly, uh, the Passover, right, just so we're all on the same page here about what we're talking about. Passover was that feast instituted by God during the Exodus, right? He was going to send the final plague upon Egypt because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people of Israel go. He sends that final plague, which was to kill the firstborn son, right, of all the Egyptians and even of the Israelites unless they did something. And what they had to do was they had to take a pure lamb. They had to slaughter that lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their house and then eat the lamb for supper. That's the Passover meal. So it's a sacrifice and a meal together. And the blood was put on the doorpost. And we're told that the angel of death came and God would not let the angel of death into the houses of the people, uh, of the houses of the people whose houses were covered with uh, the blood of the lamb, right? Okay, so that was the Passover. Now, here's the thing. Normally, when we talk about the Passover, the idea is right, that God passed over the houses that have the blood on the doorposts. And that is, for the most part, pretty sound, although it's not quite right, not quite correct with the Hebrew. There's a lot of really good Hebrew scholarship right now that is pointing out that a particular Hebrew word that we're translating as Passover should actually be translated as cover over. Uh, The reason for this is because the Hebrew word for Passover literally just means uh, to limp or to sort of stumble. It's used for, for lame people. Who, who can't walk. And so the idea is, okay, God, God stumbles over the houses or, or he passes over. It's kind of a, an idiomatic translation because it's not quite right, but they're trying to make sense of it. And what Hebrew scholarship now is figuring out is that the word Passover actually should be translated as cover over. And here's why that's important. Here's why I'm, I'm emphasizing that. When God sees the houses with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in this Passover event. He doesn't merely skip the houses. Judgment doesn't merely skip. Rather, what God does is he doesn't stumble over the house or or pass over the house. What God does is he covers the house. Listen to uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. If you've got it open in your Bibles, you'll notice that it will talk about God passing over in the second half of the verse. But listen to what it sounds like if you say cover over. Here's the verse, Exodus 12, verse 23. And Yahweh will pass through to strike Egypt. Now here's, here it is. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts, then Yahweh will cover over the door. And he will not permit the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So what God's doing in the Passover is he's not simply allowing judgment to skip, but he is literally covering them himself. He covers the door so that the destroyer does not come in. 
Now, this is a much stronger presentation of the gospel revealed to us in the New Testament, right? Because when God brings us the gospel, when Christ, when, when the work of Christ is imputed to us, it's not just that we don't get punished. It's not just that judgment skips us. But it's actually that God himself covers us. And as Calvin will later say, God covers us with the righteous robes of Christ. Right? You'll hear about this today in the sermon on Esther that I'm going to give. We're going to talk about this in more detail, so I'll leave it for there. But just note, we're not going to change the name of the Passover and not calling it the great cover-over or something. You can't really change names like that. It's, it's too well-known. But when you think of the Passover, don't think of God just skipping judgment. He's actually covering, and he's covering us with the blood of the Lamb. Robert, do you have a comment or question? Mm-hmm. Is kafar, yes. Which interestingly sounds a great deal like cover, and it basically means the same thing. Mm-hmm. To atone for is to cover our sin. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, the word you're talking about there means cover. It's exactly right. And this word for Passover, pasach, also means to cover, and it's translated that way everywhere else in the Old Testament except here. So the Hebrew scholarship wants to say, let's be consistent and do it here because it actually presents the gospel in a much more clear way. So, all right, that may seem like a minor detail, and I understand if that's the case, but the point that I'm trying to bring out here is that in the Passover, we have a profound declaration and presentation of the gospel. That judgment passes over us because God is covering us with the blood of Christ. All right? That's what's happening here in the Passover. This is a much better presentation of the gospel. All right, so that's the Passover. Now, when we look at the Passover in the New Testament, there's really two major things that we see. In the New Testament, the gospel writers and the Apostle Paul, as well as the other New Testament authors, all make it abundantly clear that the Passover was not simply looking back to the Exodus event. When Israel celebrated the Passover every year, when they slayed that perfect lamb and they feasted and they reenacted the event in a sense, they were not simply looking back to the salvation that God provided for them in Exodus. But rather what they were doing was they were also looking forward to the salvation that God would provide for them through that lamb led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. And the New Testament authors make this abundantly clear that that's what they were doing. The Passover was not just an event looking back at how God saved them in the past, but it was looking forward to how God would save them in the future through the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus. And we'll talk about those specific passages in just a second. But the second thing that the New Testament authors do is they not only show that Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb, but they also show us that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the same night that he partook of the Passover. And so it's in this way that the New Testament authors show that there is a tight connection between the Passover 
and the Lord's Supper. So in the same way that there's a tight connection between how God saved his people through the blood of a lamb in Exodus and how God saves his people through the blood of Jesus, the lamb on the cross, so there's a connection between the celebration meal of the Exodus event and the celebration meal of the cross event. You see that connection there? Not only is there a connection between the way God saves, but there's a connection between the celebration meals that the covenant people celebrate together as they celebrate that sacrifice and rejoice in it. Okay? Now, there are some uh, who object to the idea that, that Jesus instituted the Passover, or excuse me, that he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. Uh, some people don't believe that, and particularly the people who argue against that are the critical scholars as well as dispensationalists. Now, maybe you've never heard of a dispensationalist before or something, uh, but just really briefly, those guys basically want to see a very, very strong separation between the Old and the New Testaments. Okay? They really want to see that distinction there, and so they don't want to see a Passover and Lord's Supper connection as much as possible. Um, but there are also critical scholars that don't like this idea also. Robert, did you have another comment? Uh, not yet. Not yet? <laughs> Okay, I was just about to. You're, you're, you're on it. Yeah, so critical scholars, uh, that's just an old term that means we're talking about scholars who are critical of the Bible. Now, there's a good way to be critical. Lower criticism is where you're just studying the text and where you're trying to understand it. But when we say critical scholars, we're normally talking about higher criticism. Higher criticism is where they are critiquing the Bible to say, this is not right. Maybe this is right. This is not right. They're basically cutting out Scripture. They're essentially unbelievers, chopping up the Scripture, deciding this is right, this is wrong, this is correct, this is not correct. Okay? And so what critical scholars do is they come and they say, all right, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on the Passover night. And that's very clear in those Gospels. However, in the book of John, the critical scholars say Jesus instituted the supper the day before the Passover. So Jesus, the last supper, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, is, a, is on a Thursday night. Okay? And according to the critical scholars and dispensationalists, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 28, we are told that the Passover did not happen until Friday. That's their claim. Now, if they're right on that, we have a contradiction between uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? And so I just want to walk you through this really quick just to show that Jesus did institute the Lord's Supper on the Passover night. Turn to John 18, 28, if you will. Just one verse here. John chapter 18, verse 28. Now, just so you know, the events of John 18 are Jesus being brought for trial before the various authorities, uh, right before he's about to be condemned by Pilate and crucified. And so these are the Pharisees here that are being talked about. And the events here of John 18:28 are taking place on Friday morning, so the night after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Okay? And here's John 18:28. Then the Pharisees led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas... To the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So again, the text on the surface seems to be saying that the Passover was going to happen on Friday, not on Thursday. That the Passover would happen the day after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Okay? Here's a problem, though. Uh, If you look at the Old Testament laws regarding cleanness and uncleanness, which are being talked about here, the law that that the Pharisees are trying to observe here doesn't apply in this case. So, for example, what they're saying here is we're not going to go into the Gentiles' house because that would make us unclean, and then we couldn't partake of the Passover today. That's their concern. The problem is that the law says that you're only unclean until the sun goes down. And once the sun goes down, you can wash, and then you're clean. Now, the reason why that's important is because the Passover was celebrated at night, the very late evening after dark. So the Passover feast here can't actually be talking about the Passover feast because that would have been participated of at night after they would have already been clean, even if they got unclean earlier that day. Okay? The second thing is that the word Passover, or the Greek word there, Pascha, that you're seeing in the text, does not always refer specifically to the Passover feast but can refer to the many different feasts that were celebrated around the same time that the Passover feast was being celebrated. It's the same thing as if you're in the New Testament and you find the word Sabbath. Not every time you see the word Sabbath is the Christian Sabbath or the seven-day, or it's the one and seven-day rest being spoken of. For example, in Colossians 3, Paul's talking about let no one judge you about participating in a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath. And there in the context, especially when he talks about new moon and and feast, he's not talking about the weekly Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath or Sunday. What he's talking about is the Jewish calendar, the various holy days of the Jewish calendar. So remember, the the New Testament authors don't always use terms with exact precision sometimes, right? They, They speak in generalities often, and you have to use context, okay? So here in John 28, or sorry, in John 18, 28, John is not saying that Jesus uh, didn't institute the Lord's Supper at the Passover feast like the other gospels say he did. No, here he's just talking about a general feast and that he's just trying to show the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, how they're trying so hard to observe the ceremonial laws of, of cleanness and uncleanness while all the while they're crucifying the Son of God. That's John's point. Now, aside from looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and seeing that Jesus did institute the supper uh, on the Passover feast, we also have a ton of evidence that just overwhelmingly shows the tight connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. For example, you don't need to turn here, but earlier in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, there's a reference to Jesus being the Passover Lamb. But it gets even more clear. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. 
You want it any more clear? It's obvious to the New Testament authors that Jesus is the Passover lamb. There is a connection there. Uh, You can also look at uh, Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about Jesus being the lamb led to the slaughter. So that's just a brief sampling of the texts that show, according to the New Testament authors, there is a tight connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now, here's why this is important. You're like, okay, what does this have to do with understanding the Lord's Supper? How does this actually help us? It's all good theology, but what are we actually getting at here? Well, here's what we're after, okay? You remember, we already showed the Passover, right, is a sacrifice and a feast. And what is happening in the, the Passover right, is they are celebrating how God saved them in the Exodus, and they are feasting and rejoicing at the salvation that God has provided. Right? There's those four concepts. Feasting, sacrifice, rejoicing, salvation. Right? When we come to the Lord's Supper, it's the same thing. In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate a sacrifice. Now, not that there actually is a sacrifice happening. Let's make that clear. We're not Roman Catholics. Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice once for all on Calvary. 2,000 years ago. But nonetheless, we celebrate that sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. We remember what Christ did for us. And when we do that, we can rejoice and we feast together as the body of Christ. We rejoice and feast together at the salvation that God has provided. And so what you see is that in the Passover... There is a looking back to the sacrifice or to the to the lamb that God provided in the Exodus, right? In the Lord's Supper, there's a looking back to the lamb that God provided on Calvary. But not only that, you remember, the Passover didn't just look backward. The Passover looked forward to the celebration feast talked about in Isaiah 26 that we just read a moment ago. The great feast that God will have for his people. The true ultimate salvation. That's what the Passover was looking forward to. And so it looked forward to Christ. But further, the Lord's Supper then, just like the Passover, doesn't just look back to what Christ did on Calvary. But the Lord's Supper itself is also looking forward to the true marriage supper of the Lamb that we find in the book of Revelation. The final ultimate feast where the salvation that we experience already but not yet right now will be realized in its fullness in the consummation. So you see the Lord's Supper then is just like the Passover. It's not just looking back to what God has done in the past, but it's also looking forward to what God has done and will do. And we'll talk about that already not yet that the Lord's Supper is is symbolizing and sealing when we get there. But we're out of time this morning. So that's the Passover, right? You see, there's a tight connection there in the New Testament. And it it really richens our understanding of the Supper. And so I'll I'll bring up some more of these themes as we keep looking at this in the future. Uh, Are there any uh, brief questions before we wrap it up this morning? All right, well, if not, let me uh, close this in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for the Lord's Supper, Lord. We thank you for um, what a great blessing it is for us. Lord, as we partake of the Supper uh, in the coming weeks and months and years, Lord, I pray that um, you would recall to our minds 
things that we find in your word concerning the supper, that as we partake, that we would remember that true sacrificial lamb on Calvary that, that took our sin. And Lord, that we would love that you have not only uh, passed over judgment on us, but that you've also covered us. And you've covered us in the righteous robes of the Lamb. Lord, we thank you for this great gift. And we pray now that uh, we would be motivated and excited to praise you in worship this morning. And that we would be ready and willing to hear your word. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.